Chapter forty six, part one, Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two, by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty six, part one. In my ministry theology was naturally replaced by anthropology. This science had not in 1863 been recognized by the British Association. The facts with which it was concerned were brought out in other sections, and the society in London discussing the Negro with an eye to America had not yet merited recognition. But my combat about the Negro in that society was the means of giving me a place in the Anthropological Institute when it arose. The works of Tyler and Lubbock, and the generalizations of Herbert Spencer concerning primitive man, breathed on all the dry bones in the museums, and anthropology presently leaped into the front rank of sciences. The materials for such investigations were largely supplied by Colonel Lane Fox, an officer who, having won promotion in the Crimean War, found that his genius was for the study and not the destruction of man. He then conquered tribes and races by friendliness. He had gained their confidence, and returned from his official expeditions with a vast number of guns got not by capturing, but captivating, the tribes. He had even learned the arts of primitive man. He was probably the only Englishman who could make a primitive flint-arrow and throw a boomerang so as to make it return. Colonel Lane Fox and his wife a daughter of Lord Stanley of Alderley, were aristocrats without heirs. They were free from dogmatic notions, and often came to my chapel. We found them delightful neighbors. They were not wealthy, but one day we were startled by the tidings that Colonel Lane Fox was henceforth to be known as General Pitt Rivers, having inherited Rushmore, the magnificent estate of his granduncle Lord Rivers in Wiltshire. He told me that nothing could have appeared to him more improbable than this succession, there being two sons of Lord Rivers to inherit the estate before it could pass to the female line represented by himself. The unexpected death of Lord Rivers' sons as they successively approached majority could not fail to start a local legend. It was said that a noble maiden whom Lord Rivers was expected to wed died of a broken heart on hearing of his marriage, her last words being, none of their children will inherit Rushmore. If scientific men had not lost the Eastern faith, they might have believed that the angel of death had been commissioned to secure for science the inheritance of Rushmore. To science it came. The vast estate was rich in barrows and other relics of primitive man, and all these fell precisely to the man most competent to summon them from their slumber of ages, and interpret their story of an extinct human world. The six large illustrated volumes recording his researches, distributed to those who could utilize them for the advancement of knowledge, the museum he built at Farnham, and his great collections given to Oxford, constitute the fit monument of General Pitt Rivers. Had not his modesty been equal to his merit, or had he been capable of partisanship, he would have been made Lord Rivers. But, as Schiller said, the question is not, Art thou in the nobility? but is there nobility in thee? General Pitt Rivers was conservative in temperament, 
and my admiration was not due to any special sympathy on his part with my opinions. Even where we generally agreed, that is, on religious subjects, he inclined to think that a little mixture of superstition was more useful than I thought, if the superstition were not cruel, like the biblical ferocities. I was afraid of even the so-called petty superstitions. The estates and revenues of Rushmore came into the possession of General Pitt Rivers freed from entail, and it was a droll circumstance that several church livings came into the absolute ownership of this scientific rationalist. He asked me if I would like to have one of them. He told me that the bishop once came for some official duty and stayed at Rushmore. On Sunday they drove to church, where the bishop preached, and one of the lessons for the day happened to be a belligerent psalm. On their way home the general remarked, "'That lesson seems rather more related to my profession than to that of your lordship.' The bishop smiled, but said nothing. In walking through the Anthropological Museum at Oxford, presented to the university by General Pitt Rivers in company with my friend E. B. Tyler, we recalled at every step the illumination given to the various objects at the Institute in London when the general was its president. His military knowledge was utilized to show us the survival of the crossbow in the Oriental rifle, and he had collected a variety of Patagonian paddles painted with queer fragmentary designs, utterly meaningless until by putting them together they were shown to be the gradually distributed parts of a sacred image, a tribal totem. But he did not omit regions nearer home from his researches. He made a collection of the caps of women in Brittany, and I well remember how the mirth caused by their display to a company of ladies and gentlemen in London changed to grave interest as he revealed to us the significance of these caps. The peasant or villager of one parish must not wear the cap of another parish to which she has casually gone. The parish caps vary, and each has in itself arrangements for variation. Some ornamental appendages are let out when the wearer attends a wedding or a fete and some usual fringes are turned in for a funeral. A nun's headdress was shown, and the general pointed out the indications that all of the French caps were developed from that of the nun. Nothing was too small for his study. I do not think the general ever printed anything about these caps. His theory of their origin, the nun's headdress, he regarded as conjectural, it was his way to suggest things in conversation which lasted in the memories of his friends. One day, when we were talking of the precipitous way in which the French had hurled themselves against the Germans, he remarked that it might be due to the brachiocephalous character of the Gallic cranium. In their heads the blood flies straight up like a fountain. In the long-headed man the blood has to go roundabout way before it mounts, and gives him time to think twice before he acts but he liked the French and highly appreciated their anthropologists. In presiding over any discussion in the Anthropological Institute, the general showed as much skill in getting at the ideas of his colleagues as in securing secrets from remote tribes. And they were men whose ideas were worth having. There sat Huxley, Busk, Lubbock, Tyler, Leitner, Francis and Douglas Galton, Paul Grave, Sir John Evans, Professor Newton, and generally some eminent man from America or from the continent. Professor Whitney once addressed us, and Eugene Schuyler described curious manners and customs in Turkoslav regions. A motion to admit ladies to membership sprung on the Institute, 
a burning issue, and an evening was devoted to it. There had been receptions of members in private houses, and the intelligence of many of their ladies was well known. The Honourable Mrs. Pitt Rivers, Mrs. Tyler, Mrs. Huxley, and others were felt by best men to be persons of serious interest in our pursuits, and these would have been admitted without controversy. But to admit only a few was hardly possible. Professor Huxley made a vigorous speech in favour of the admission of women. He spoke with unusual animation, brushing away some of the objections made on the score of feminine delicacy. Several members feared that readers of papers on manners and customs of distant tribes might, were ladies present, suppress pictures or details of importance. Professor Huxley did not believe that any lady interested in science could have mock modesty. She was as much entitled to know the facts of nature as a man. Tyler, to whom we looked for an appreciative analysis of the points made in any discussion, made in his graceful way the summing up, which for a time delighted the group opposed to the innovation. But he closed by saying, Should the society conclude to admit ladies, I beg to propose the name of Mrs. E. B. Tyler. This, of course, raised a laugh and ended the discussion. Ladies thenceforth began to appear at our meetings, and there was no reason to suppose that any narratives were modified, or pictures suppressed, because of their presence. One day I accompanied General Pitt Rivers and Sir John Evans on a day's exploration in the Thames Valley, where some flint implements had been newly discovered. We moved along the sharp flinty roads, softened only by enthusiasm, never removing our eyes from the ground, however the larks might sing or the gorse blossom. I gathered sundry bits of stone whose smooth sides or points suggested manipulations by man, and separately others I thought more doubtful. But Sir John no sooner put them beneath his spectacles than all my unquestionable ones were hurled into the air, while of the doubtful ones two were thought to bear some trace of workmanship. We entered the house of a gentleman, not without some skill in such things, who had accumulated six hundred specimens. The stones were laid out on a table. Sir John sat at the head, Pitt Rivers at the foot, and their eyes sparkled. But of the six hundred pieces only two or three dozen had been touched by primitive man. The numismatic knowledge of Sir John Evans was unsurpassed. He was a charming speaker, and I never knew an audience at the Royal Institution more enchained than by a lecture of his on coinage of the ancient Britons and natural selection. From pictorial representations he read us a connected story of evolution. The forms of ancient coins had grown, changed, passed into totally new species, occasionally relapsing into the original type, and generally preserving some trace of their origin. One series, picked up in odd places and fitted together, told a very quaint story. The original, struck under Philip of Macedonia, had a laurelled head of Hercules on the obverse, and on the reverse a chariot with two horses driven by victory. This was the most important Macedonian coin commercially, and the engraving fine. As trading communities sprang up in the western regions, whither the race was migrating, it was necessary to have a coin interchangeable with that of Macedon, but impossible in new centres to engrave the figure so perfectly. The result was mere indications of the devices on the coin sufficient to identify its value, and these gradually reduced. A stage was reached when the chariot was represented by one wheel, another when of the two horses remained eight amputated legs. In time the original meaning of these signs was lost. 
but skilful engravers had appeared in the west one of whom made a guess at the meaning of the horse-legs and produced from them a head of medusa on the reverse from the laurelled head of hercules the face gradually disappeared leaving only the headdress and fillet the western engravers supposed this headdress and fillet to be an early attempt to represent the cross which duly supplanted the last trace of hercules my wife and i enjoyed the hospitalities of rushmore and mrs pitt rivers took us on delightful drives among them to visit the descendants of the old lord baltimore who in sixteen forty eight appointed my ancestor william stone governor of maryland but my anthropological interest brought me nearer to the chiefs buried in the cranbourne chase barrows than to any ancestor and i enjoyed most my morning walks or drives with the general to the points where his workmen with their picks were digging with tender caution i had the happiness of being among those invited to rushmore soon after the family moved there to pass some days in witnessing the opening of a number of tumuli which the general believed likely to yield interesting results the other guests were herbert spencer norman lockyer sir john evans sir francis galton and sir john lubbock now lord avebury whose wife is a daughter of general pitt rivers some of the barrows being far luncheon was sometimes taken with us and the visit made a kind of picnic near each dead chieftain were little piles of cinders left from the sacrifices offered in his honour or for his repose the cinders the shape of the mound the weapons and implements found were discussed while we partook of the animals sacrificed for our own comfort as possibly those represented by the barrow cinders were for the funeral guests in returning from immemorial antiquity our minds were accommodated to the present by watching the ladies at tennis or other sports on the rushmore lawns or dispersing ourselves to read or write and to dress for dinner for the dinner at rushmore was a brilliant event the family was large six sons and three daughters the ladies in their artistic dresses and the men of science who generally appreciate the time for relaxation better than business men or theologians made the most of these occasions mrs pitt rivers with her culture and entertaining conversation was the fit hostess for such assemblies in the latter part of the evening we filed into the billiard-room where i observed with pleasure the skill of herbert spencer all have heard that he did not like defeat and once said to an opponent who easily vanquished him that his unusual skill argued a wasted life the legend was probably based on the gravity with which herbert spencer made every stroke some of my friends were surprised too at my own eagerness if not proficiency in the game my friend fletcher moulton q c suggested for me as a coat of arms a pulpit impaled by a billiard cue but i never touched a cue before going to england and at aubrey house had learned to play from grave men like john bright and peter taylor m p the modern man calls himself civilized because of his improved machinery but solomon and confucius and buddha and jesus were considerable men without any telegraphs or electric lights when the archaeologists used to speak of stone age or bronze age meaning thereby ignorant and morally savage people i knew perfectly well that those several types were living side by side in our great cities in eighteen eighty one london was able to witness the flagellation of judas in the docks a clergyman of the english church leading a devout procession along the streets in celebration of the stations of the cross a clerical manifesto against the pagan blasphemy of eating cross-buns on good friday
the opening of a grand natural history museum on Easter Day, while the cathedrals were celebrating the resurrection of a prophet from his tumulus, and lectures in the Royal Institution by Helmholtz, Tyndall, and Maine. Stone Age, Bronze Age, Age of Gold, Age of Reason, all elbowing each other in that sum total of all epochs called London. I remember the last appearance of Faraday at the Royal Institution. He came to hear Dean Stanley lecture on Westminster Abbey, and entered the theatre supported by two friends. The Prince of Wales, now King, presided and gave in his delicate way a gesture of deference to the venerable man. In 1881 Helmholtz came to deliver the annual Faraday lecture before the Chemical Society. This was a grand event. I thought Tyndall particularly happy in his speech after Roscoe had presented the German with the Faraday medal. Helmholtz, a grand Bismarck-like man, delivered in good English his lecture on Faraday's experiments in electricity, and charmed his learned audience. But Helmholtz was not to return to Germany with the impression that Albion is the happy isle of pure science. The Psychical Society sought to interest him in their wonders. The case which then particularly interested them was that of two little daughters of a country clergyman, one of whom held up behind a closed door any playing card, and her sister on the other side described it. When this was told Helmholtz by a college professor who had experimented with the children, the German could hardly take him seriously. The professor named some of his eminent colleagues in the investigation, and said they should be credited with common sense enough to test such things with care. Finding Helmholtz still incredulous, he asked, "'Would you believe it if you saw it yourself?' "'Certainly not,' answered Helmholtz. "'In my investigations, if anything peculiar appears, I do not accept it on the evidence of my eyes. Before any new thing can even be provisionally accepted, I must bring it to the test of many instruments.' and if it survives all my tests, then I send it over here to Tyndall, and to investigators in other countries. No, I would not believe any abnormal phenomenon on the mere testimony of my eyes. End of chapter 46, part 1